Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, Chapter 3 Well, as we know, Jared, his brother, and their families and friends, all of these fortunate people who were spared from having their language confounded at the Tower of Babel, were directed by the Lord in the previous chapter to gather at the valley called Nimrod. Once this party had gathered and had made extensive preparations, which included flocks of every kind, both male and female, as we read in the previous chapter, aviaries of fowls that were caught with snares, and aquariums in which they did carry with them the fish of the waters, swarms of honeybees, and seeds of every kind of that which was upon the face of the land. Once they had prepared all of this, they embarked upon a voyage to a place, as it said in verse 5, into the wilderness, yea, into that quarter where there never had man been. And it came to pass that the Lord did go before them, and In fact, as this verse goes on, the Lord did talk with them as he stood in a cloud and gave directions whither they should travel. This voyage involved barges, as the next verse told us in verse 6, and it came to pass that they did travel in the wilderness and did build barges, in which they did cross many waters, being directed continually by the hand of the Lord. Well, this brought the Jaredites to a new place, a place named Moriankamer, most likely named after the brother of Jared. But this was not the end of the Jaredites' journey. They had not yet arrived at the land of promise that was envisioned by Jared himself in Ether chapter 1, verse 38, when he said, And who knoweth but the Lord will carry us forth into a land which is choice above all the earth? And if it so be, let us be faithful unto the Lord, that we may receive it for our inheritance. But instead, as the Lord told the people in Ether chapter 2, verse 7, their task was not to stop at Moriankamer, but it was to press on. He said, The Lord would not suffer that they should stop beyond the sea in the wilderness, but he would that they should come forth even unto the land of promise, which was choice above all other lands, which the Lord God had preserved for a righteous people. So this is why we read in the previous chapter that Moriankamer, this place by the sea, was only to be a staging area for the next leg of their journey. Something greater was still in store for these Jaredites, but it required a willingness for them to embark upon yet another sea voyage, one that would last for the better part of a year. And we know this because at its end, in Ether chapter 6, verse 11, we will read that these people were on the water for 344 days. So, as we discussed in the previous chapter, Moriankamer is the place setting for all that unfolds between the brother of Jared and the Lord in Ether chapter 2 and in this chapter in Ether chapter 3. Ether chapters 4 and 5 depart from the storytelling narrative, really, uh, and they contain teachings from Moroni. So then, when the Jaredite exile resumes in Ether chapter 6, 
they board their newly lighted barges and leave Moriankamer for the promised land. So that's what we can expect moving forward. As we learned in the previous chapter, the brother of Jared had some misgivings about the limitations of his barges. And as we could see there, these misgivings were born of experience. This is because the eight barges that were to carry the Jaredite people to the promised land were actually the second iteration. We know this because of the Lord's comment to the brother of Jared in Ether chapter 2, verse 16, that he was to build barges after the manner of barges which ye have hitherto built. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared did go to work, and also his brethren, and built barges after the manner which they had built, according to the instructions of the Lord. So with the prospect of leaving Moriankamer after these four years, and with the prospect of this second go-round of voyage via barge, we might say, the brother of Jared this time requested a few changes. Perhaps the people asked the brother of Jared to take these concerns to the Lord. This was certainly the pattern established in Ether chapter 1, where it was Jared who asked his brother to approach the Lord. After all, these people would have been intimately acquainted with the limitations of these barges. We can't know for sure, nor do we know how long their journey from Nimrod to Moriankamer actually was. But it certainly would have been substantial enough to motivate the people to request a few revisions. And, in fact, as we learned in the previous chapter, it was a few revisions, three exactly, that were requested of the Lord by the brother of Jared at the end of Ether chapter 2. I'd like to take a moment here and consider these three requests, and I'll present them here in the order in which they were addressed by the Lord. So the first request had to do with breathing. As the brother of Jared told the Lord in verse 19 of Ether chapter 2, in them we cannot breathe. And again, he knew this from experience. Save it is the air which is in them, therefore we shall perish. The Lord answered this concern very directly, telling the brother of Jared in verse 20, Thou shalt make a hole in the top, and also in the bottom. And when thou shalt suffer for air, thou shalt unstop the hole and receive air. And if it so be that the water come in upon thee, behold, ye shall stop the hole, that ye may not perish in the flood. From this, we can see a very direct concern that is given a distinct and direct answer. It seems then that sometimes this is the way that the Lord answers our prayers. It is especially appropriate, I think, that the Lord answered the brother of Jared's request regarding breathing in this manner. When we think about King Benjamin's description in Mosiah chapter 2, verse 21, of a heavenly king who, quote, has created you from the beginning and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath, supporting you from one moment to another. Well, then there was the matter of steering. Whither shall we steer? asked the brother of Jared in Ether chapter 2, verse 19. We might imagine the people wondering and possibly even murmuring over whether they were taking a direct or a circuitous route in their barge journey between Nimrod and Moriankamer. Could that journey have been shortened through better steering? Were they simply to follow the whims of the ocean? For this next leg of their ocean voyage, could they take matters into their own hands? To this question, the Lord does not offer a direct answer to this very real concern. He only addresses it incidentally when describing the need for a closed design for the barges in verse 24, saying that, quote, the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, and also the rains and floods have I sent forth. 
So as to steering, this answer would have to be good enough for the brother of Jared and his people. Simply put, the Lord answered them with an indirect no. Even though he was granted means for breathing, the brother of Jared was simply not granted means for steering, at least not in the way he anticipated. Regardless of the Jaredites' possible desire to the contrary, this voyage was not a time for mortals, with their limited vision and judgment, to steer their own crafts, any more than it was Lehi's role to tell the Leahona where it should point, or for Moses to personally decide when his people left Sinai. These eight barges, then, would be devoid of rudder or wheel. All who boarded them would have to assume the passenger seat. Their only driver, then, their only captain, would be the Savior himself, as he directed the winds and the waves in their behalf. Looking forward in the text, we will discover in Ether chapter 6 that the Jaredites do meekly accept this unusual navigational method. It says that they set forth into the sea, commending themselves unto the Lord their God, in verse 4. The way in which the Lord directed the wind is a thrice-repeated point of emphasis in this passage, which ends with this verse in verse 8, And it came to pass that the wind did never cease to blow towards the promised land while they were upon the waters, and thus they were driven forth before the wind. Well, this seems to tell us that sometimes the Lord's answer to our steering questions is an indirect no as well. Even though we are agents unto ourselves, and even though our efforts to avoid being compelled in all things are certainly laudable, there are times when our mortal judgment will not suffice in navigating us through the hazards and complexities that lie just outside our field of vision. Thou wilt show me the path of life, Psalm 16 verse 11 says, or be thou my vision, as the beautiful song by Audrey Assad goes. Our task instead, then, is to learn the patience of a passenger, or to return to the metaphor at hand, the trust of a sea traveler, subjecting ourselves to the prevailing winds of our circumstances and trusting that he is behind them. That in instances such as these, these winds really are his way of steering us along. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9. Again, the winds have gone forth out of my mouth, as the Lord told the brother of Jared. In other words, the winds of your circumstances may seem violent and unmerciful at some times, and random at others, but I am directing them. Allow me to steer you. As Edward Hopper's hymn text says, Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass came from thee. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. As a mother stills her child, thou canst hush the ocean wild. Boisterous waves obey thy will when thou sayest to them be still. Wondrous sovereign of the sea, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. When at last I near the shore, and the fearful breakers roar twixt me and the peaceful rest, then, while leaning on thy breast, may I hear thee say to me, Fear not, I will pilot thee. 
Well, as to the matter of light, which is the first question that was posed by the brother of Jared and the final concern to be resolved in this narrative, an answer to this query comes in an entirely different way. O Lord, says the brother of Jared in verse 22, Behold, I have done even as thou hast commanded me, and I have prepared the vessels for my people, and behold, there is no light in them. Behold, O Lord, wilt thou suffer that we shall cross this great water in darkness? The Lord doesn't answer this question directly, as he did with the matter of breathing, or even indirectly, as he did with the matter of steering. Instead, he avoids answering at all. He puts the question back on the brother of Jared's shoulders, saying, What will ye that I should do, that ye may have light in your vessels? Here, then, is the Lord's third way of answering prayer in this episode. He puts the question back to us. As Elder Robert D. Hales once taught, As parents and leaders, we must remember that it is not meet that the Lord should command in all things. That's an expression that comes out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 58, verse 26. Like the brother of Jared, we must carefully consider the needs of our family members, make a plan to meet those needs, and then take our plan to the Lord in prayer. This will require faith and effort on our part, but he will help us as we seek his assistance and do his will. This teaching is consistent with what President Harold B. Lee taught in his book, Stand Ye in Holy Places. He said this is the principle in action. If you want the blessing, don't just kneel down and pray about it. Prepare yourselves in every conceivable way you can in order to make yourselves worthy to receive the blessing you seek. Well, could it be then that as we consider the brother of Jared's three requests to the Lord, that the issues we take to the Lord tend to fall within similar categories? Perhaps there are times when our request to God is a breathing issue and we will receive a direct solution for him, something specific that we can do. Perhaps at other times our request is a steering issue and it is best that we don't take the will at all. Instead, we trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, as Proverbs 3 and 5 says. And finally, perhaps our request for a solution is a light issue And it will remain up to us to use our own understanding, to find the solution, being led in our strivings as was Nephi, when he said, I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. So, having considered this third way in which the Lord answers the brother of Jared's request, let's return to the narrative and see how it unfolds. There are many lessons to be gleaned from the events in Ether chapter 3, and I'd like to focus on a couple of them uh, before we move into the text. After putting the question of light back to the brother of Jared, the Lord reminds him of the circumstances at hand. The need for a barge design that is impervious against these things, as verse 25 says, or in other words, against the mountain waves, as verse 24 says, that are to be generated from the aforementioned winds from his mouth. In so doing, the Lord pulls the brother of Jared into the dilemma and asks him to consider a viable solution. This is an instance, as we have just learned from Elder Hales and from President Lee, when it is better for the master teacher to not simply dispense an answer, but to allow the learner to co-discover the answer to his query. With this in mind, let's see what the Lord does. He nudges the brother of Jared further in verse 25 By repeating a variation of his earlier question, he says, Therefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? This time, 
notice that the Lord suggests that there might be something that he could prepare. So this is the question that we as readers are left with as well, as Ether 2 came to a close. And as this chapter, Ether chapter 3, begins, we wonder what the Lord meant with his question to the brother of Jared. What could he prepare for the brother of Jared in order to light these eight barges? And what can the brother of Jared bring to the Lord to effectuate this result? The answer, which of course we will look at in more detail in our reading of the text, is that the brother of Jared brings something of his own making to the Lord. He'll bring him 16 small stones that, quote, were white and clear, even as transparent as glass. That's what the opening verse of Ether chapter 3 will tell us. And with these stones, the brother of Jared brings an idea. To us, it seems an audacious idea, but to the brother of Jared, it seemed plain enough. He says in verse 4, And I know, O Lord, that thou hast all power, and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger, and prepare them that they may shine forth in darkness, and they shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared, that we may have light while we shall cross the sea. Incredibly, the Lord, who, by the way, was more present in this exchange than we as readers would dared to have imagined, incredibly, the Lord obliged. He responded to Jared's request by touching these stones, one by one, with his finger, as verse 6 will tell us. Marvelous things follow for the brother of Jared, as we will discover in our reading of this chapter. Well, stones that allow one to see. Stones forged by man and illuminated by the Lord. These are deeply symbolic objects that are generated by a deeply symbolic gesture. I will leave the meaning of the objects themselves for now, to focus instead for a moment upon the gesture of these stones. Uh, upon the transaction that takes place between the brother of Jared and the Lord. I think we can certainly agree that Jared undoubtedly expended great effort in preparing these stones. However, the transformational miracle of these stones had yet to occur. His efforts were really only an actuating gesture, as was the woman's reaching out to touch the hem of the Savior's garment. The real miracle was when the Savior's power, in the form of light, flowed into these stones. Among other things, I believe that this gesture is symbolic of the way in which we access the power of change through the atonement of Jesus Christ. In other words, I believe that this sequence between the brother of Jared and the Lord has something to teach us about repentance. I have come to believe that repentance is two changes, actually. It is not just a change that we make, It's not just miserable behavior modification, as Elder Rendland put it. Even though that change is soul-wrenching and substantial, as was the brother of Jared's efforts to make these stones. But the transformational light of repentance does not emanate from our own fingers. It is ultimately a change wrought by the Lord upon us. The change we make, or all we can do, as Nephi once described it, is really only the actuating or triggering gesture for the miracle that follows, which we might call the second change. And that second change is a miracle that is as real as any that we read of in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It is when the Lord touches us with his divine hand. He infuses us with light and turns us into new creatures who have no more desire or disposition to do evil. 
and who then will sing the Redeemer's praises in word and deed from that transformational moment forward. So, to bring these rather extended introductory thoughts to a conclusion, what do we learn from the brother of Jared in this episode that took place at the land by the sea called Moriankamer? Well, we learn that the Lord is near. We can approach him in prayer. We can go to his holy mountain to be in his presence, which is a theme that we'll see very prominently in Ether chapter 3. We see that the Lord answers our prayers, and he does so in a variety of ways. He lends us breath. He steers us. He gives us light. And through all of this, he changes us until we come to the point attained to by the brother of Jared in this chapter when the Lord told him that, quote, ye are redeemed from the fall. Well, let's look at the structure of Ether chapter 3 then. It's composed of 28 verses. This chapter is so glorious that I think it's impossible, really, for any introductory comments to do it justice. As I mentioned a couple of chapters back, I recently heard Terrell Givens say, in our Gospel Doctrine class, actually, that this is the greatest theophany that can be found in Scripture, certainly in ancient Scripture. So in verses 1 through 5, and in answer to the Lord's question in the previous chapter, what, what will you that I should prepare for you? We find that the brother of Jared has prepared something for the Lord. He presents the Lord with 16 stones, very curiously, and he does so at Mount Shalem, or Shalem, S-H-E-L-E-M. And of course, we can't avoid the comparison between that and the word shalom, and also, of course, the obvious comparison between this and the temple. So he takes these 16 stones to Mount Shalem, and he asks the Lord to touch them with his finger that they shall shine forth unto us. So this is the brother of Jared's idea. This is a gesture of incredible faith, as we have just discussed, and it's accompanied by amazing expressions of faith. For example, in verse 5, the brother of Jared will say, Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. That very interesting additional insight is something we'll talk about. Then in verse 6, we discover, incredibly, as we've already discussed in the introduction, that the Lord does oblige the brother of Jared in this request, and he actually touches these 16 stones with his finger. What unfolds in verses 7 through 16 is something that we hardly could have even imagined. The Lord actually shows himself to the brother of Jared in these verses, and he will tell the brother of Jared that he is, quote, redeemed from the fall. Therefore, ye are brought back into my presence, as verse 13 says, therefore I show myself unto you. So after this takes place, Moroni will comment on this in verses 17 through 20. He'll speak of the way in which the Lord ministered unto the brother of Jared in this instance, even as he ministered unto the Nephites. And so that's very interesting language. He'll speak of the veil and the way in which the brother of Jared could not be kept from beholding within the veil. So instead of the brother of Jared's eyes being holden while he was in the Lord's presence, as was the case with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he instead could behold the Savior himself. The veil could not contain the Savior in this instance. Having this perfect knowledge of God, in verse 20, as Moroni will tell us, the brother of Jared could not be kept from within the veil. Now this marvelous thing that the brother of Jared has seen is discussed in verses 21 through 24. 
And in this passage, the Lord forbids the brother of Jared from releasing his record of that which he have seen to the world. And so we can see incidentally in this passage that the Lord will have the brother of Jared write these things. And then this will be dis- discussed more explicitly in a moment. So in this passage, the brother of Jared is told that the things that he uh, has seen and heard uh, should be written, but that they should not be released. And instead, he is commanded to seal them up. And he will do so with two stones, speaking of stones. So we'll have much to read with respect to that, of course. In verses 25 and 26, the idea of what the brother of Jared saw in this instance is expanded upon. And we discover that the Lord showed the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth. And he used the phrase, all things. Then once that is made clear to us as readers... The Lord will repeat his instructions in verses 27 and 28 to write and seal the brother of Jared's vision of all things. Well, with that, let's return now to verse 1 for a reading, remembering, as we are wont to do, what was said at the end of the previous chapter. That's when the Lord, in verse 25 of Ether chapter 2, said, Therefore, what will ye that I should prepare for you, that ye may have light when ye are swallowed up in the depths of the sea? So as that chapter ended, we as readers were left with that question as well. What will the brother of Jared do now? So here is how this new chapter opens. And it came to pass that the brother of Jared... Now the number of the vessels which had been prepared was eight, it says parenthetically. The brother of Jared went forth unto the mount, which they called the Mount Shalem because of its exceeding height. Now this, of course, suggests that the meaning of Shalem had something to do with height. It's interesting that it uh, bears such a similar resemblance to the Hebrew word shalom. In any event, this is clearly a temple association. So that's all that's said about this mount, but we can certainly see the parallels between that and other mountaintop or temple experiences that ancient prophets have in Scripture. So the brother of Jared meets the Lord there. And it says, And he did molten out of a rock sixteen small stones. So what will ye that I should prepare for you? Well, this is what the brother of Jared came up with. And they were white and clear, even as transparent glass. And he did carry them in his hands upon the top of the mount, and cried again unto the Lord, saying, Now was the brother of Jared on this same mountaintop in his previous experience of discussing the three problems with the barges with the Lord? I think this would be very possible. Uh, The Jaredites have lived in the land of Moriankomer for four years, And I think we could guess that very early on in this process, the brother of Jared, as the prophet of the people, would have found this place to go, this temple mount called Shalem. The idea of precedent here, I think, is really worth considering for a moment. How did the brother of Jared get such an idea? Was there some precedence for using stones in this manner? And then there was his idea that the Lord could touch these stones, Well, here's some commentary, first from Charles Swift. This is a piece that he delivered in the 2007 uh, Sydney Besperium Book of Mormon Symposium. It's called The Literary Power of the Book of Mormon. Swift says, The Jaredites begin their journey by placing stones that have been blessed by the Lord's touch in their ships so that they might have light. Of course, the Lord could have provided light for the travelers by many other methods, but he used the stones the brother of Jared brought to him. These stones may serve to remind those in the barges, and us as well, that all light comes from the Savior, that he is the rock of our salvation. 
Robert J. Matthews has written, and this is from a piece called The Mission of Jesus Christ. We'll refer to this several times through this chapter. Interestingly, the 16 stones are described as being clear, even as transparent glass. Although we do not know the exact date of the Tower of Babel, it is commonly placed at about 2200 B.C. We may wonder how early the art of glassworking was known. William S. Ellis in the National Geographic magazine for December 1993 reports that the most reliable research places the invention of glass sometime in the third millennium before the birth of Christ in Mesopotamia, or present-day Iraq and Syria. And further, the earliest known glassmakers worked in Mesopotamia as far back as 2500 BC, crafting beads and other small objects to imitate precious stones. Mesopotamia is the general area, and the date of 2500 BC indicates that glass may have been made as much as 300 years before the Tower of Babel, and, thus, substantiates the story of the brother of Jared. We do not need historical proof to confirm the record, yet it is interesting to see a bit of secular confirmation that it could have happened as the record said it did. Now as we return to the text, we can see that the brother of Jared has brought the stones to the Lord. Now he will bring the request. Now, the way that he couches this request is in first very carefully pleading his case before the Lord. And so he'll do this particularly in verses 2 and 3. So, verse 2, O Lord, thou hast said that we must be encompassed about by the floods. Now behold, O Lord, and do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee. Because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. Nevertheless, O Lord, Thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon Thee, that from Thee we may receive according to our desires. We're getting a lot of insight from this verse. The word weakness is used. Uh, That's a word, of course, that Moroni will develop later in Ether chapter 12. The brother of Jared refers to the fall. So that's something that will be addressed later when the Lord tells him that in his case he is redeemed from the fall. But this certainly provides a template for us as we pray, because we can remember our state as we do so, that we are estranged from God, that we are abhorrent in the sense that we are fallen. Uh, no one cl- clean thing can enter into his presence. The, the only way that we can call upon God and hope that our words will enter his presence is if they are carried by a mediator. And of course, that mediator is Jesus Christ. Then in this verse, we see the brother of Jared referring to the commandment that we must call upon thee, that we may receive according to our desires. So this provides tremendous insight into the brother of Jared's own attitude and disposition towards the Lord in the prayerful exchanges that he had with him in Ether chapter 1 and in Ether chapter 2. Let's go back for just a moment to Robert J. Matthews' piece called Mission of Jesus Christ, where he will talk about this statement regarding the fall. He says, We all have inherited Adam and Eve's fallen nature, which includes the ability and the propensity to sin. Conception, which clothes us in the flesh, is the mechanism of transmission, the means by which Adam and Eve's fallen nature, both physical and spiritual death, is transferred from generation to generation. The propensity for and susceptibility to sin are implanted in our nature at conception, just as death is. Several important theological concepts are involved in this verse. First is a statement regarding the character of the Lord, that he is holy and dwells in heaven. 
Second is a declaration that mankind is unworthy before the Lord, and the explanation that because of the fall our natures have become evil continually. The brother of Jared plainly declares that the fall of Adam has an effect on all mankind, making all of us mortal. This is the natural man concept taught elsewhere in the Book of Mormon, in the Bible, and in the Doctrine and Covenants. It is very evident that this great prophet had a knowledge of the fall and of its effect on human nature. This concept is projected in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19, saying that the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam, and in 1 Nephi chapter 10, verse 6, declaring that all mankind were in a lost and in a fallen state, and ever would be, save they should rely upon this Redeemer. And Alma chapter 22, verses 13 and 14, saying that because of the fall of man, he could not merit anything of himself. Then Matthews provides several other references that have similar statements, such as Helam in chapter 14, when Samuel the Lamanite was speaking, and Alma chapter 42, when Alma was speaking to Corianton, and actually in the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants as well. Through Isaiah, he continues, the Lord spoke of unregenerated man, saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because of the fall, which has come upon every man, woman, and child, a Redeemer is absolutely necessary, and that Redeemer is Jesus Christ. No one can be saved without him. A third theological tenet found in Ether chapter 3, verse 2, explains that the Lord is approachable through prayer, that he has commanded mankind to pray to him so that we may receive according to our desires, that we receive that which we desire should be both a joy and a caution, This idea is frequently stated in the Book of Mormon, as in Alma chapter 29, verse 4, and in Alma chapter 41, verse 5, and in Jacob chapter 4, verse 15, wherein men have received both good and bad because they desired it. Verse 3, the brother of Jared is continuing here to plead his case before he comes to his request. Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity, and hast driven us forth, And we can think of the Tower of Babel incident there. And for these many years have we been in the wilderness. So we know of four years that they dwelt in tents in the land of Moriankomer by the sea. That's where they are now. We don't know how much time transpired prior to that in their journey, but it undoubtedly was quite a lot. Nevertheless, thou hast been merciful unto us. O Lord, look upon me in pity, and turn away thine anger from this people and suffer not, that they shall go forth across this raging deep in darkness. But behold these things which I have molten out of the rock. So in other words, you asked me what I should prepare, and here is the solution that I have brought before you. Behold these things which I have molten out of the rock. So now the brother of Jared is ready, now that he has presented these stones to the Lord to make his request. Before moving into that in verse 4, I'd like to read this from Ogden and Skinner. They say the brother of Jared as a natural man, carnal, fallen, and sinful, was admitting his own nothingness, but at the same time he was confident that God is approachable, merciful, and condescending to hear our mortal cries and to respond to our righteous desires. The fact remains, however, that the fall is so powerful and pervasive that without the regenerating power of the atonement, our very natures are evil continually, even though we were born as spirit children of God the Father. The fall is so powerful that it changed not only our condition, but also our location in relation to God's presence. President Boyd K. Packer taught, 
It is easier for me to understand that word fall in the scriptures if I think both in terms of location and of condition. The word fall means to descend to a lower place. The fall of man was a move from the presence of God to mortal life on earth. That move down to a lower place came as a consequence of a broken law. Fall may also describe a change in condition. President Brigham Young declared, When the earth was framed and brought into existence and man was placed upon it, it was near the throne of our Father in heaven. But when man fell, the earth fell into space and took up its abode in this planetary system, and the sun became our light. When the Lord said, Let there be light, there was light, for the earth was brought near the sun that it might reflect upon it so as to give light by day and the moon to give us light by night. This is the glory the earth came from. And when it is glorified, it will return again into the presence of the Father, and it will dwell there. And these intelligent beings that I am looking at, if they live worthy of it, will dwell upon this earth. The atonement of Jesus Christ, Ogden and Skinner continue, changes both our fallen condition and our fallen location. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that by the power of the atonement, this earth will be rolled back into the presence of God and crowned with celestial glory. These many years we have been in the wilderness, the brother Jared just said to the Lord. Moses and Lehi and their peoples later spent many years in the wilderness also, as a testing ground of their faith and obedience. We too are traveling through this wilderness of life to test our faith and obedience. Now returning back to verse 4, the brother of Jared, again having presented these 16 stones to the Lord, will now make his request. And now, O Lord, Thou hast all power, and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger, and prepare them that they may shine forth in darkness. And they shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared, that we may have light while we shall cross the sea. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men." Well, this displays faith on several levels. I'd first like to come back to this idea of precedence. What an idea, first of all, to molten these stones, but then that the Lord would touch them with his finger. Is there any precedence for this? Well, yes, there is some. McConkie Millet and Top have written, There are fascinating rabbinic legends to the effect that Noah enjoyed light in the ark because he carried with him divinely given shining stones. If such stones are true... Then the brother of Jared was acting in harmony with the deeds of a prophet who was less than a century and a half removed from him. So this would lead us to wonder if the brother of Jared had access to either a scriptural text or perhaps oral history that Noah had done something similar. And in fact, and as John Tavetnas points out, uh, the footnote to Genesis chapter 6 verse 16 in our edition of the King James Bible says that it is Hebrew for the word T-S-O-H-A-R, which some rabbis believed it was a precious stone that shone in the ark. Tavetnus says, In order to provide light inside the vessels during the ocean crossing, the brother of Jared prepared 16 crystalline stones that the Lord touched, making them glow. Similar stories are told of the ark of Noah. A number of early Jewish sources say that God had Noah suspend precious stones or pearls inside the ark to lighten it. The gems would glow during the night and dim during the day so Noah could tell the time of the day and how many days had passed. This was the explanation the rabbis gave for the shohar, 
or again that word T-S-O-H-A-R, that the Lord told Noah to construct in the ark. Though called a window in the King James Version of Genesis chapter 6, verse 16, the Sohar is rendered light in some Bible translations. Ogden and Skinner have written, The brother of Jared prepared two stones for each of the Jaredites' eight sea-going vessels and took them to the Lord with the request that he touch them and make them shine. It is interesting that our modern scientific advances have taught us that some types of stone, as silicon, have chemical properties that can provide luminescence. But God, the master creator who knows the physical properties of stones, can energize them with his light. Now coming back to this tremendous expression of faith on the part of the brother of Jared, Ogden and Skinner have said, The two exclamations, I know, O Lord, thou hast all power, and we know that thou art able to show forth great power, pointedly show the prophet's great faith, and as he presented himself at the veil, would be rewarded with an extraordinary manifestation and endowment of knowledge. Of course, Ogden and Skinner are saying something very compelling to those who have ears to hear. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland spoke about the childlike, simple faith that the brother of Jared showed when he said, Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. Surely God, as well as the reader, feels something very striking in the childlike innocence and fervor of this man's faith. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. Perhaps there is no more powerful single line of faith spoken by man in Scripture. It is almost as if he is encouraging God, emboldening him, reassuring him. Not, Behold, O Lord, I am sure that thou canst do this. Not, Behold, O Lord, thou hast done many greater things than this. However uncertain the prophet is about his own ability, he has no uncertainty about God's power. There is nothing here but a single, clear, bold, and assertive declaration with no hint or element of vacillation. It is encouragement to him who needs no encouragement, but who surely must have been touched by it. Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. That beautiful piece of insight comes, by the way, from an address that Elder Holland delivered at a Sperry Symposium in 1995. It's called Rending the Veil of Unbelief. That's a phrase that will come up in the next chapter, in Ether chapter 4. Now, as I kind of mentioned in the introduction to this chapter, the actuating or triggering gesture of the brother of Jared is now complete. He has exercised faith unto this moment. Uh, If we were to liken it unto repentance, we can think of faith unto repentance. But he has approached the Lord with something that he has very carefully prepared, these stones. And he has requested this audacious thing of the Lord that he would touch these 16 stones with his finger. So now we'll discover again in verse 6 that the Lord does oblige. And it came to pass that when the brother of Jared had said these words, and when we read this phrase, uh, that the brother of Jared had said these words, we can go back and look at the pattern of these words very carefully and see how they can inform us in our prayers as we approach the Lord in prayer. So it came to pass that when the brother of Jared had said these words, behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger. Now there's something very instructive in this that's implied, and that is that the only thing the Lord had to do in order for his finger to be present to touch these stones was that he stretched forth his hand. It doesn't say anything about him immediately traveling to the presence of Jared. In other words, the implication here, if we kind of think about it for a moment, is that the Lord was already there. 
He wasn't yet visible, but he was already there. And in order to make himself visible, he only needed to stretch forth his hand. There's something very symbolic and beautiful in that. And there's something there, I think, that's also related to his expressions elsewhere, that he is in our midst. It's in the Doctrine and Covenants section 38, verse 7, that he says, I say unto you that mine eyes are upon you, I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me. So again, he stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger. And the veil was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord. And it was as the finger of a man, like unto flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. So this is a different type of falling, but it seems almost to be a poetic play on words. He uh, earlier spoke of the way in which he was fallen. Then later he will be told that he will be redeemed from the fall, or that he is redeemed from the fall, uh, a few verses later in this chapter. But here, he is falling down before the Lord. So it's this type of falling that is preceding his redemption from the fall. There's something very beautiful and poetic in that, I think. So as we can also see that from this, I think it's one thing for the Lord to go ahead and touch these stones with his finger, as the brother of Jared anticipated, but another for his finger to be visible in the process, which it, it seems that the brother of Jared had not anticipated. Then we will read of the brother of Jared's wonder over the shape and form of the Lord's finger, and his assumption that he is made of flesh and blood. So all of this will be expanded upon and discussed now. So verse 7 says, And the Lord saw that the brother of Jared had fallen, there's that word again, had fallen to the earth. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, why hast thou fallen? And he said unto the Lord, I saw the finger of the Lord, and I feared lest he should smite me, for I knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. The brother of Jared's wonder over the Lord having flesh and blood or appearing to have flesh and blood uh, is certainly understandable. What isn't as readily understandable, I think, is his assumption that because he saw the finger of the Lord, that the Lord would smite him. Interestingly, Moses, when he had his great mountaintop experience, uh, said in verse 11 of Moses chapter 1, But now mine own eyes have beheld God. But not my natural, but my spiritual eyes, for my natural eyes could not have beheld, for I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld his face, for I was transfigured before him. We can assume then that the same thing is happening here with the brother of Jared, but that verse gives us some insight into the glory that he would have beheld when he saw the Lord's finger. And apparently associated with that was the brother of Jared's um, deepened understanding of the way in which the Lord could smite him. Robert J. Matthews has written, Among the fundamental doctrinal truths contained in this passage, we find that a spirit has the appearance of flesh and blood, even though it is spirit material. So we'll go on to discuss this in a moment. We know from Doctrine and Covenants section 129 that if the brother of Jared had tried to touch the finger of the Lord, he could not have felt it since mortals cannot physically feel a spirit body. So the brother of Jared falls. The Lord commands him to arise. And the brother of Jared explains that he fell because he feared that the Lord would smite him, and he knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto him, Because of thy faith thou hast seen that I shall take upon me the flesh and blood. So he speaks in future tense, I shall take upon me flesh and blood. 
And never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were it not so, ye could not have seen my finger. Sawest thou more than this? So preceding this question of sawest thou more than this, there's something really substantial to think about here. The Savior's telling the brother of Jared that he simply would not have seen the Lord's finger in this instance were it not for his great faith. And never has man come before him with faith to this degree. Have there been other instances where the Lord did touch stones with his fingers to light a vessel? Perhaps, as we've previously read regarding Noah. But apparently no one has seen the Lord's finger in this instance. So then the Lord says at the end of verse 9, Sawest thou more than this? Now, how is one to interpret this question? You almost get the sense that a master is teaching a prodigy here. Something miraculous is unfolding as the Savior sees the brother of Jared displaying such great faith. He's done something that no man has ever done, at least not quite in this context, and we'll speak more of this later. But the master is saying to the brother Jared, you're a prodigy. You saw my finger because you have more faith than anyone who has come before me before. And as a result, if we look at it this way, this upstart, this mortal, this brother of Jared, this prodigy, is allowed into the domain of the master. So then the Lord says, Sawest thou more than this? And once again, we see evidence of the brother of Jared's faith in the next verse, in verse 10, because it says, And he answered, Nay. But it doesn't stop there. He says, Lord, show thyself unto me. Again, the prodigy here is allowed the experience of penetrating the veil and attaining unto the domain of the master. Show thyself unto me, the brother of Jared says. Verse 11, And the Lord said unto him, Believest thou the words which I shall speak? So we can see here that before the brother of Jared is allowed into this domain, he first must confirm the veracity of the Lord's words. So this exchange is taking place between these two parties with the veil still separating them in this temple mount. So even though the brother of Jared has displayed such great faith, in this instance it is still necessary for him to have this exchange with the Lord. Now before going further into this exchange, here's something that Elder Holland has written in Christ in the New Covenant. Preparatory faith is formed by experiences in the past, by the known, which provides a basis for belief. But redemptive faith must often be exercised towards experiences in the future. The unknown which provides an opportunity for the miraculous. Exacting faith, mountain-moving faith, faith like that of the brother of Jared, precedes the miracle and the knowledge. Faith is to agree unconditionally and in advance to whatever conditions God may require in both the near and distant future. It's a beautiful statement by Elder Holland. When we think about this idea of faith that moves mountains, since we're thinking about the connection here between mountains and temples, Could those words be exchanged in that expression as well, a faith that moves the temple? Perhaps in a way, uh, that's part of the meaning of a faith that moves mountains. It's a faith that moves the temple into us, a faith that makes us vessels or carriers of light, like unto the temple. Now moving back to this exchange that must take place before the Lord will show himself unto the brother of Jared. Again in verse 11, he said, Believest thou the words which I shall speak? And the brother of Jared says in verse 12, And he answered, Yea, Lord, 
I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth, and canst not lie. Verse 13, And when he had said these words, so again, it's this exchange that finally makes it possible for the prodigy to enter the domain of the master. So verse 13, And when he had said these words, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him, and said, Because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. Therefore ye are brought back into my presence. Therefore I show myself unto you. Ogden and Skinner have written, The immense faith of the brother of Jared gave him the privilege of parting the veil and seeing the spirit body of the Savior. Because of thy faith thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. The brother of Jared was seeing what Jehovah would look like when he came into the world as Jesus Christ. The Savior's spirit body resembled the body he would inhabit centuries later in mortality. This is spoken of, by the way, in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verse 2. The prophet's faith was so perfect that his redemption was secured. That is, his calling and election was made sure. And even as a mortal, he was brought back into my presence. Therefore, I show myself unto you. Now, we can also pause here for a moment and realize that the Savior had not yet come to the earth and performed his atoning act in Gethsemane and on Golgotha. Yet, we can see here that his redemptive power is still in effect for the brother of Jared. So, how does this work? Well, it's something that Elder Callister talks about very eloquently in his book, The Infinite Atonement. Uh, He talks about the way in which it is infinite across time. So that certainly is on display here. We can see that the power of the atonement and the reach of the atonement is on display here, the reach across time. Elder Holland has said, Ether chapter 3, verse 13, underscores the eternal nature of the atonement, its impact reaching out to all who lived before the Savior's birth, as well as all who lived after it. All those in Old Testament times who were baptized in Christ's name had the same claim upon eternal life that the brother of Jared had, even though Christ had not yet even been born. Now that the Savior stands before the brother of Jared in this way, he introduces himself in a way that looks scripturally familiar to us. So he says in verse 14, Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. So again, that makes us think about the infinite nature of his redemption across time. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. So here we have the Savior being identified by name, Jesus Christ, in this text that is as old as the text of Genesis, where, at least in its current form, we do not have the privilege of reading that name, Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 14, I am the Father and the Son. And Abinadi certainly taught us about that in our readings. I am the Father and the Son. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and my daughters. Who, again, does this statement apply to then? It applies to all, all across time. Robert J. Matthews has written in the piece that I've referred to earlier called uh, The Mission of Jesus Christ. He has written with respect to a change that was made in the 1981 edition of the Book of Mormon, where the scriptures now say, in me shall all mankind have life, where previously this verse actually said, in me shall all mankind have light. So he says, during the preparation of the 1981 edition, it was brought to the attention of the brethren that even though all printed editions of the Book of Mormon to this time had read light, 
The printer's manuscript from which the type was set for the first edition of the Book of Mormon clearly said life. The Scripture's Publications Committee unanimously agreed that since the manuscript read life, the correction should be made. So there was a mistake in the original rendering of this verse that justified that correction, and as Matthews is saying here, this was immediately apparent to the entire committee once they appealed to the printer's manuscript. He says, though, that there's another reason, too. Uh, as, as Matthews goes on, he says, An examination of the context also justifies this correction. For they who believe will become the sons and daughters of Christ. They are thus spiritually begotten by him and are given eternal life. So that's a, a really wonderful point. With the restoration of that word life, it reinforces the Savior's teaching that he is the Father and the Son. Let's pause for just a moment and revisit what we have learned previously in the Book of Mormon about the Savior being the Father and the Son before we move further into this. It was part of King Benjamin's address towards the very end in uh, Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, where he said, And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. Of this incident, uh, Ogden and Skinner have written, verse 7 declares, and again this is Mosiah chapter 5, verse 7, that when we make this sacred covenant with Christ, we become his sons and daughters. So we have this covenant relationship with him that makes us his sons and daughters. So he's the father and the son to us. With that kind of holy commitment, he hath spiritually begotten you, as King Benjamin wrote. Of course, we are first of all sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, He gave us our original spiritual birth, clothing our intelligences with spirit bodies. But now, in a new sense, we become children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. In Doctrine and Covenants section 25, verse 1, he explains that all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. I think while pursuing this aside, I'll go ahead and read the rest of Ogden and Skinner's commentary, which I read associated with uh, Mosiah chapter 5, because we get this great statement, I think, and an important statement about the way in which we regard the Savior and speak of him uh, by Elder Theodore M. Burton. So they, Ogden and Skinner continue by saying, Rather than Jesus Christ being our elder brother, as he is sometimes called by members of the church, he has actually become our covenant father, and we should use this more reverential title. Elder Theodore M. Burton of the Seventy explained why. He said, It bothers me a little. To hear members of our church speak familiarly of Jesus Christ, they often refer to him as our elder brother. It is true that Jesus Christ was the firstborn of all the spirit children of God, the Eternal Father. In the spirit world, he was known as Jehovah, the firstborn. In that world, we were justified in referring to him as our elder brother because we were with him there, and he was indeed our elder brother in that existence. But that time has passed. We are now living in a new and a different world. Before we came here, we accepted Jehovah to become our anointed Savior. We shouted with joy at the prospects of receiving him here as our Lord and Savior, our God and King, even our covenant Father. When we are baptized, we actually make a new covenant with God, the Eternal Father, to take upon us the name of his only begotten Son. Jesus Christ thus becomes by adoption our covenant Father. It is therefore, in my opinion, wrong on earth after baptism, to refer to him now as our elder brother. He is now our covenant father, and we have become his covenant sons and daughters. 
we ought to be more respectful and show our gratitude to him for the opportunity we have to become members of his royal family. So now returning to the text, we have this exchange that took place between the Lord and the brother of Jared before he was revealed. And then the brother of Jared is now in the Lord's presence. And the Lord introduces himself in the way that he does in verse 14, which we have read, calling himself the father and the son. Now in verse 15, he continues by saying, and never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created for never has man believed in me as thou hast. Seest thou that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. There's quite a lot to say about this verse, and I I think the best way to approach it is simply to read the words of an apostle. Uh, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has discussed this particular exchange in his book, Christ and the New Covenant. Here he talks about six possible explanations Uh, for the Savior's statement here in verse 15 that he had never before shown himself to man. Elder Holland says one possibility is that this is simply a comment made in the context of one dispensation and as such applies only to the people of Jared and Jaredite prophets, that Jehovah had never before revealed himself to one of their seers and revelators. Another suggestion is that the reference to man is the key to this passage, suggesting that the Lord had never revealed himself to the unsanctified, to the non-believer, to temporal, earthly, natural man. The implication is that only those who have put off the natural man and are sanctified, such as Adam, Enoch, and now the brother of Jared, are entitled to this privilege. Some believe that the Lord meant he had never before revealed himself to man in that degree or to that extent. This theory suggests that divine appearances to earlier prophets had not been with the same fullness that never before had the veil been lifted to give such a complete revelation of Christ's nature and being. A further possibility is that this is the first time Jehovah had appeared and identified himself as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with the interpretation of the passage being, never have I showed myself as Jesus Christ unto man whom I have created. That possibility is reinforced by one way of reading Moroni's later editorial comment, Having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil, therefore he saw Jesus. Yet another interpretation of this passage is that the faith of the brother of Jared was so great, he saw not only the spirit finger and body of the premortal Jesus, which presumably many other prophets had also seen, but also some distinctly more revealing aspect of Christ's body of flesh, blood, and bone. A final explanation And in terms of the brother of Jared's faith, the most persuasive one is that Christ was saying to the brother of Jared, Never have I shown myself unto man in this manner, without my volition, driven solely by the faith of the beholder. As a rule, prophets are invited into the presence of the Lord, are bidden to enter his presence by him and only with his sanction. The brother of Jared, on the other hand, seems to have thrust himself through the veil, not as an unwelcome guest, but perhaps technically as an uninvited one. Said Jehovah, Never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast, for were it not so, ye could not have seen my finger. Never has man believed in me as thou hast. Obviously, the Lord himself was linking unprecedented faith with this unprecedented vision. If the vision itself was not unique, then it had to be the faith and how the vision was obtained that was so unparalleled. The only way that faith could be so remarkable was its ability to take the prophet uninvited 
where others had been able to go only with God's bidding. President Joseph Fielding Smith has also offered an explanation of what uh, Ogden and Skinner have called an otherwise puzzling first sentence of verse 15, when the Lord says, And never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created. He has written, The Savior showed to the brother of Jared his entire body, just as it would appear when he dwelt among men in the flesh. It is a reasonable conclusion for us to reach, and fully in accordance with the facts, that the Lord had never before revealed himself so completely and in such a manner. We may truly believe that very few of the ancient prophets at any time actually beheld the full person of the Lord. Now, in verse 16, the Savior's words to the brother Jared continue, and, at least for us, conclude. He says, Behold, this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit, and man have I created after the body of my spirit, and even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. So there is spirit and body to differentiate between here and also son and father, which we can talk about in just a moment. But with respect to spirit and body, there's this great statement by the First Presidency in 1909 called The Origin of Man. It says, God created man in his own image. This is just as true of the spirit as it is of the body, which is only the clothing of the spirit, its complement, the two together constituting the soul. The spirit of man is in the form of man, and the spirits of all creatures are in the likeness of their bodies. As to the distinction between the Father, who is the Father of our spirits, and the Son, who is, as we have just established, our covenant Father, the Savior will sometimes assume the role of either or both when he speaks in Scripture, and and we can refer to this as divine investiture of authority. Well, this exchange between the Lord and the brother of Jared goes on, and we will get other fragments of it later in the chapter, but... Now that Moroni has given us what he has of this incident, he will now offer commentary. So he says in verse 17, And now as I, Moroni, said I could not make a full account of these things which are written, therefore it sufficeth me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man in the Spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body even as he showed himself unto the Nephites. So here we get this record that chronologically predates the time in which the Savior appeared, um, in Third Nephi. However, Moroni knows full well that when we encounter this record as readers, it will post-date that time. And so he is likening this appearance of the Savior to the brother of Jared to the time in which he appeared to the Nephites. It's very helpful, I think, for Moroni to offer this commentary for us and to identify himself as he does so as the editor and abridger. John Welch has spoken of this. He says, Moroni is usually careful about marking the beginning and ending of the comments that he has inserted into the abridged record. For example, his comments in Ether chapter 3, verses 17 through 20, which is the passage that we're just in. Then Welch shows that he does the same thing in verses 1 through 6 of uh, chapter 4 of the book of Ether, and also uh, 18 through 26 in uh, chapter 8 of the book of Ether, and then of course he does so in chapter 12 of the book of Ether. He says, all of these sections are readily distinguishable from the abridged portions in the book of Ether. Moroni's frequent use of the phrase, I Moroni, and then Welch provides several references for when Moroni invokes that phrase, makes it easy to tell what Moroni has written and what he has abridged. And I misspoke earlier, that is out of John Welch's book, Re-Exploring the Book of Mormon, but what I just read is actually written by a contributor to that book, Roger P. Keller. 
Moroni now continues in verse 18 with his comparison between the appearance of the Lord to the brother of Jared and the appearance of the resurrected Lord to the Nephites, saying, And he ministered unto him, meaning unto the brother of Jared, even as he ministered unto the Nephites, and all this that this man might know that he was God, because of the great many works which the Lord had shown unto him. And because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. There's this idea again, then, that the brother of Jared, because of his great faith, penetrated the veil as an uninvited guest. Now, that's not an unwelcome guest, but as an uninvited guest. Moroni seems to be supporting that idea here by saying this man could not be kept from beholding within the veil. And he saw the finger of Jesus, which when he saw, he fell with fear. There's that emphasis again on him falling from fear. For he knew that it was the finger of the Lord. And he had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. So here we can see that the brother of Jared's faith is then supplanted with knowledge, something that Alma spoke of, of course, in Alma chapter 32. Bruce R. McConkie has commented on this concept of faith being replaced by a sure knowledge in his book, A New Witness to the Articles of Faith. He says, in the eternal sense, because faith is the power of God himself, it embraces within its fold a knowledge of all things. This measure of faith, the faith by which the worlds are and were created, and which sustains and upholds all things, is found only among resurrected persons. It is the faith of saved beings. But mortals are in process through faith of gaining eternal salvation. Their faith is based on a knowledge of the truth, within the meaning of Alma's statement that faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things, but that men have faith when they hope for things which are not seen which are true. In this sense, faith is both preceded and supplanted by knowledge. And when any person gains a perfect knowledge on any given matter, then, as pertaining to that thing, he has faith no longer, or rather his faith is dormant. It has been supplanted by pure knowledge. Again, there's a reference to Alma chapter 32, verses 21 through 34. The brother of Jared stands out as a good illustration of how the knowledge of God is gained by faith, and also of how that perfect knowledge, from a mortal perspective, replaces faith. And again, all of this is coming out of Moroni's words in verse 19 when he says that the brother of Jared had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. In other contexts in scripture, when one does not have faith, uh, accepting this uh, passage in Alma chapter 32, it's because they lack faith. But here, in the instance of the brother of Jared, is the other end of the spectrum. It's the consummation of his faith. Now, Moroni will repeat his teaching from verse 19 by saying in verse 20, Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus, and he did minister unto him. Now, having provided us with that beautiful editorial commentary, uh, Moroni will now return to the text. And in verses 21 through 24, he will return to the Lord's words to the brother Jared on this occasion. Now, whether they're perfectly in sequence or not, we don't know. But it says this in verse 21, And it came to pass that the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt not suffer these things which ye have seen and heard to go forth unto the world until the time cometh that I shall glorify my name in the flesh. So as we're reading this, we're discovering that there is a command for the brother of Jared to write this, but the way in which we learn it is simply in the context of the Lord saying, he's he's basically implying that Jared is going to write this because he's saying, "Don't, don't release your writings to uh, the world just yet. He shouldn't release them until I shall glorify my name in the flesh. Wherefore, 
ye shall treasure up the things which ye have seen and heard, and show it to no man. So by treasure up here, the Lord uh, clearly means that you should write them. And now he makes this clear in subsequent verses. Verse 22, And behold, when ye shall come unto me, ye shall write them and seal them up. So this qualifier that the brother of Jared shall come unto me when he writes is really curious. And perhaps the Lord there is saying that he will do his writing in the temple. Perhaps that's the way in which he will come unto him as a prerequisite to writing these things. In any event, uh, here then is the explicit command to write in verse 22. And behold, when ye shall come unto me, ye shall write them and seal them up, that no one can interpret them, for ye shall write them in a language that they cannot be read. Now, would that be in a different language than uh, what the brother of Jared normally speaks in? Perhaps, but it could also uh, be a reference to the fact that the brother of Jared and Jared and their family and their friends did not have their language confounded at the Tower of Babel, and presumably they spoke the pure language of Adam. That's a language that no one else on the earth speaks. And so it would, have been, it would be that this record is written in the pure language of Adam, and that's a language that they cannot be read. So they need to be interpreted. So that's what follows now in verse 23. And behold, these two stones will I give unto thee, and ye shall seal them up also with the things which ye shall write. So these two stones, the Lord says to the brother of Jared, which two stones we would ask? Well, of course, we can relate them as we will with commentary here in just a moment uh, to the Urim and Thummim. But where did they come from? Were they related to the stones that the brother of Jared first brought to the Lord? We don't know from the text uh, where these two stones came from. We only can see that the Lord is saying, these two stones will I give unto thee. Have they been forged in a different realm? being not of the earth whatsoever? Well, this may indeed be the case. The Lord returns to the idea of language in verse 24, saying, For behold, the language which ye shall write, again, presumably this is the pure language of Adam, because he then says, I have confounded. So again, referring to the Tower of Babel incident. Wherefore, I will cause in my own due time that these stones shall magnify to the eyes of men these things which ye shall write. Robert L. Millet has pointed out that uh, the Hebrew plural nouns Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfections. The Urim and Thummim is an instrument used to receive revelation. Now the Book of Mormon Institute manual says the prophet Joseph Smith used the same Urim and Thummim that was given to the brother of Jared upon the mount when he talked with the Lord face to face. We learn that from Doctrine and Covenants section 17 verse 1. President Joseph Fielding Smith wrote a brief history regarding the Urim and Thummim, and this is out of his work called Doctrines of Salvation. King Mosiah possessed two stones which were fastened into the two rims of a bow, called by the Nephites interpreters, with which he translated the Jaredite record. We read all about that in Mosiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 14. And these were handed down from generation to generation for the purposes of interpreting languages. How Mosiah came into possession of these two stones, or Urim and Thummim, the record does not tell us, more than to say that it was a gift from God. And uh, that expression is found in Mosiah chapter 21, verse 28. Mosiah had this gift, or Urim and Thummim, before the people of Limhi discovered the record of Ether. They may have been received when the large stone was brought to Mosiah with engravings upon it, which he interpreted by the gift and power of God. Now, with that stone incident, we would be referring to Mosiah Sr., uh, the father of King Benjamin. 
and that's recorded in Omni, chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. They may have been, President Smith continues, uh, have been given to him or to some other prophet before his day, just as the brother of Jared received them from the Lord. So when the Lord does give them to the brother of Jared here, I would add that there's no mention of the two rims of a bow. It would seem that the stones themselves were otherworldly, but that perhaps the rims in which they were, were mounted were fabricated by man. That, of course, is just conjecture on my part. Now, Joseph Fielding Smith continues that the Urim and Thummim, or two stones given to the brother of Jared, were those in the possession of Mosiah, appears evident from the Book of Mormon teachings. The brother of Jared was commanded to seal up his writings of the vision which he had when Christ appeared to him, so that they could not be read by his people. The Urim and Thummim were also sealed up, so that they could not be used for the purpose of interpreting those sacred writings of this vision, until such time as the Lord should grant to man to interpret them. When they were to be revealed, they were to be interpreted by the aid of the same Urim and Thummim. Joseph Smith received with the breastplate and the plates of the Book of Mormon the Urim and Thummim, which were hit up by Moroni to come forth in the last days as a means by which the ancient record might be translated, which Urim and Thummim were given to the brother of Jared. The entry Urim and Thummim in Guide to the Scriptures says that they were instruments prepared by God to assist man in obtaining revelation and in translating languages. In the Hebrew language, the words mean lights and perfections. The Urim and Thummim consist of two stones set in silver bows and sometimes used with a breastplate. The earth will become a great Urim and Thummim in its sanctified and immortal state. And that's described in Doctrine and Covenants section 130, verses 6 through 9 which say the angels do not reside on a planet like this earth, but they reside in the presence of God, on a globe like a sea of glass and fire, where all things for their glory are manifest, past, present, and future, and are continually before the Lord. The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. This earth in its sanctified and immortal state will be made like unto crystal, and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom or all kingdoms of a lower order will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ's. There are biblical references to the Urim and Thummim, as the Guide to the Scriptures points out. Exodus chapter 28, verse 30 says, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart, And he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. And very interestingly, we get this passage in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, that refers to a white stone given to man by God. He that hath an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receive it. Well, here we can certainly see that this is what has happened in the case of the brother of Jared. He has overcome. The Lord has told him very specifically in this chapter that he has been redeemed from the fall. So as we've already read, there are many Book of Mormon references to the Urim and Thummim. It's described in the Doctrine and Covenants. Of course, it's described in the Pearl of Great Price in Joseph Smith history. But interestingly, also in Abraham chapter 3, verses 1 and 4. And I, Abraham, it says in verse 1, had the Urim and Thummim, which the Lord my God had given unto me, 
in Ur of the Chaldees. So there's that pattern again. Clearly Abraham is one who had overcome and had been given the white stone, referred to by John. And in just a moment, of course, we'll read of the way in which the brother of Jared is shown a vision of all things, drawing yet another comparison to the Apostle John. Before moving into that, I'd like to pause for just a moment and consider the beauty and the symmetry of this exchange that is taking place between the brother of Jared and the Lord. It is certainly true that the brother of Jared brought 16 forged and molten stones to the Lord. It seems to be that at the end of this exchange, the Lord brought stones in a reciprocal act to the brother of Jared in the form of the Urim and Thummim. So to the question, what shall I prepare for you, or what what would you have that I should prepare at the end of Ether chapter 2, and yet then it's the brother of Jared that prepares the stones. Well, ultimately there are stones that are apparently prepared by the Lord and that come from his realm that are then given to the brother of Jared, making this exchange complete. So now just as with the Urim and Thummim, how there is continuity between dispensations and between volumes of Scripture, with these interpreters or these stones, there's also continuity across dispensations uh, with this idea of a prophet who has a vision on a mountaintop, a temple experience, where the Lord shows him the inhabitants of the earth and a great vision unfolds before him. We certainly spoke of that in the book of Revelation and spoke of it at length uh, when Nephi had his great vision in 1 Nephi. Well, here we will discover that The brother of Jared is shown this same vision, which I think could appropriately be called the vision of all things. Verse 25 says, And when the Lord had said these words, he showed unto the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth which had been, and also all that would be, and he withheld them not from his sight, even unto the ends of the earth. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says, Moroni wrote that the brother of Jared, or Moriankimer, recorded in his vision all the inhabitants of the earth from the beginning to end. This vision reveals all things from the foundation of the world unto the end thereof, to borrow language from 2 Nephi chapter 27, verse 10. Moroni explained that there never were greater things made manifest than what the brother of Jared saw, and he will tell us that in the next chapter in Ether chapter 4, verse 4. We know that Moroni sealed a copy of this vision with the plates he delivered to Joseph Smith, Moroni further informed us of the conditions the Lord indicated must exist for this sealed portion of the record to come forth. The scriptures indicate we must repent, exercise faith in the Lord like the brother of Jared did, and become sanctified. Much to think about there. Ogden and Skinner have written, The brother of Jared saw, as Enoch before had seen, in Moses chapter 7 verse 4, and as Moses would later see, in Moses chapter 1 verse 8, a panoramic vision of the entire history of the world and every person who ever did or ever would live on this earth. We do not know how many souls that would be, of course, because our earth is not finished being populated, but a conservative estimate might be 125 billion inhabitants. If the brother of Jared saw each person for only one second, the vision would have been 125 billion seconds in duration but 125 billion seconds is over 3,963 years. Therefore, he saw them all in a whole different time reference than we mortals can understand. Moses chapter 1 verse 28 indicates that Moses, when he saw every soul created for this earth, discerned them by the Spirit of God. In other words, he was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Ghost, 
that is, he was transfigured, so was Joseph Smith when the grand vision of the degrees of glory was opened up to him. By the power of the Spirit our eyes were opened, and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God, said Joseph in Doctrine and Covenants section 76, verse 12. Reynolds and Sojal have written in their commentary on the Book of Mormon, When Moriankamer had received the Urim and Thummim, so Reynolds and Sojal are very confidently associating the name Moriankamer with the brother of Jared there, the Lord opened his vision, and he was shown the human race, past and future, passing as if in a panorama. Enoch had a similar view of many generations upon Mount Simeon, as we read in Moses chapter 7. Abraham, who received a second Urim and Thummim while he was in the Ur of the Chaldees, had marvelous visions and revelations concerning the creation of the universe and the intelligences that were organized before the world was. We read of that in Moses chapter 3. Moses, too, who may have been the possessor of the same Urim and Thummim that had first been given to Abraham, had similar visions. So again, in verse 25, we learned that the brother of Jared has been shown all the inhabitants of the earth which had been, and none were withheld from his sight. Verse 26 then says, For he had said unto him in times before, that if he would believe in him, that he could show unto him all things, it should be shown unto him. Therefore the Lord could not withhold anything from him, for he knew that the Lord could show him all things. As I have mentioned at other times, I think the term all things is quite loaded here. First, it was the person of Jesus Christ that the brother of Jared was able to see because of his great faith and that the, the, the person of Jesus Christ himself could not be withheld from the brother of Jared. And now it is this view or vision of all things that cannot be withheld from the brother of Jared. Indeed, the Lord could not withhold anything from him, as this verse says. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland has written, After the prophet stepped through the veil to behold the Savior of the world, he was not limited in seeing the rest of what the eternal world revealed. The staying power and source of privilege for such an extraordinary experience was once again the faith of the brother of Jared. For the Lord could not withhold anything from him, for he knew that the Lord could show him all things. Now that it has been made abundantly clear to us what it is that the brother of Jared has seen, what it is that he's commanded not to write, and what it is that he is commanded to seal up, we come back in verses 27 and 28, the final two verses of this chapter, to the Lord's instructions, which are repeated here, really, to write and to seal the brother of Jared's vision of all things. So verse 27, And the Lord said unto him, Write these things and seal them up, and I will show them in mine own due time unto the children of men. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded him that he should seal up the two stones which he had received, and show them not, until the Lord should show them unto the children of men. We'll read more about this then in Ether chapter 4, this time uh, when they will be shown unto the children of men, both this vision of all things that has been written in the pure language of Adam, and the stones which seem to have been transported to man from another realm, In this sense, I think, and as we liken the brother of Jared's experience to John the Revelator's experience, this visit to the visionary realm where they were able to see all things, when when they come back to their own mortal world, there, there are really no words that are adequate for describing what it is that they saw. And so, of course, John uses the language of symbols in transmitting this to us. Um, and the brother Jared is going to be able to do this with the pure language of Adam, which uh, will, will be a more suitable vehicle for describing the things 
uh, that are seen in this vision of all things. But very symbolically, it seems, this stone, this pure white stone, or these stones, the Urim and Thummim, this stone of chapter 2 of Revelation, which is likened, I think, at least in Guide to the Scriptures, uh, to the Urim and Thummim, is also something that is symbolically transmitted from this heavenly realm to the earthly realm and there kept sacred. Well, we'll have more opportunity to discuss what it is that the brother of Jared saw, and therefore what it is that John, the revelator, saw uh, as we move into Ether chapter 4, and we'll speak more of the sealed record, which will come forth later. I would like to offer two pieces of commentary, though, before going into Ether chapter 4. The first is from Ogden and Skinner, who say the brother of Jared was commanded to write down all the glorious things revealed to him and then seal them up until after the Lord's coming. Others, including Adam, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, and Nephi, received the same instruction following divine tutelage. Write it down and seal it up. The only one instructed to write it and reveal it was John. His revelation, the Apocalypse, was intended to be published to the world. We have at least part of what he wrote. As Robert J. Matthews, in his work Mission of Jesus Christ, considers what it is that the brother of Jared wrote in his record, he he muses in the following way. What is the value to us in knowing of these things that happened so long ago? I cannot speak for others, says Matthews. But when I read of the experiences of the brother of Jared, there wells up within me a desire to have faith like he had, and my testimony and love for the Lord increase. My soul hungers and wants to feast upon the same kind of spiritual food that the brother of Jared ate. Reading the brief account is an appetizer which arouses a desire to someday have such an experience myself. It's a really beautiful statement by Robert J. Matthews there, and I think a wonderful way to end this chapter and for us to consider the beauty of what it is that we have just taken in as we have read this chapter. So in Ether chapter 4, we will read more about this vision, about this sealed portion that is to come forth later, and about rending our own veil of unbelief. Then we'll get more commentary from Moroni in chapter 5, and then of course it's in Ether chapter 6 that this journey in the barges from Moriankamer will finally begin. So we have all of that to look forward to. For now, this brings us to the end of Ether chapter 3. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. 
I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text. A text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day. Keep in touch, and thank you for listening.